If Islam is so fantastic, why do Muslims always flee to Christian countries? Thanks to illegal immigration, huge swaths of the region are covered with garbage and waste that degrade the soil and kill wildlife. When Tucker Carlson told viewers of Fox News that immigration would dilute the political power of Americans. I am going to create a new special deportation task force focused on identifying and quickly removing the most dangerous criminal illegal immigrants in America who have evaded justice. When Trump told Americans that immigrants were sending their worst, they had a well of unscientific history to draw upon. It's a history that attempts to pin people down, categorize and classify them, hold them in place, bar and banish them, despite what science is increasingly showing us. Migration, despite being seen as abnormal, is actually the norm. Immobility is rare. Liberalism, the assumptions of which many of us live under, prioritizes individual freedom of thought, of expression, of movement. But simultaneously, we think of migration, which is free movement, as abnormal. We even mythologize a sedentary past of villages, farmers, peasants tied to the land, living and dying in the place where they're from. Yet in the 17th century, about 65% left their home parish at some point in their lives. We have what philosopher Alex Sager calls a sedentary bias. The migrant is presented as a problem, an alien, an outsider. Yet we move around our own countries, commuting, deciding to live elsewhere, holidaying, visiting relatives, making work trips. Without thinking, it's in any way strange. We are, as a species, mobile, nomadic, built to move. In 2020 alone, you could count 280 million migrants and each year around a billion tourists, all on the move or having moved from where they were born. And the numbers, year on year, are increasing. But so are the objects, the ideas, the phenomenon, borders, passports, guards, barbed wire, nationalist rhetoric that attempt to stop this to pin us down in place. Can we find a genealogy of these attitudes? A history of our present problem? Well, to do so, we might start, even though we could go back further, with the 18th century biologist, Carl Linnaeus. We in America are immigrants, or the children of immigrants. We are one people, but a people welded from many nations and races. Linnaeus was born in Sweden in 1707, during a period when Europeans had been exploring the globe and returning with stories of strange places, peoples and creatures. Some, like Arnoldus Montanus, wrote and illustrated books about these bizarre alien lands without ever leaving the comfort of their homes. 
Zoos, museums, galleries and menageries exhibited these incredible new foreign curiosities. Linnaeus, always fascinated by the natural world, wanted to contribute towards the scientific understanding of the planet's great biodiversity. He came up with the simple system of categorization, a taxonomy. He'd give each species two names in Latin, the first a general category and the second a more specific one. He divided species into categories like classes, genus and species, depending on a number of characteristics including, importantly, where they were found. He published his revolutionary book, Systema Natura, in 1735. But when it came to humans, Linnaeus faced a problem. How would the different races of humans fit into his taxonomy? The Bible told us, after all, that humans were created by God and descended from Adam and Eve. We must all be the same. But the prevailing consensus at the time backed up by science, by induction, by empiricism, was that non-European peoples were primitive, savage, and biologically different. Voltaire had written that the Negro race is a species of men different to ours as the breed of Spaniels is from that of Greyhounds. Linnaeus also took this view, but he had a rival, Georges-Louis Leclerc Comte de Buffon. He was also a naturalist. In opposition to Linnaeus, though, de Buffon believed that instead of adhering to strict categories depending on location, nature was dynamic, changing, in flux. He thought humans had migrated and adapted to local conditions as they moved around the planet. Like almost everyone at the time, though, de Buffon still believed in a kind of natural hierarchy. His theory was that the further from the Garden of Eden humans have moved, the more their biology degenerated. African biology, for example, had suffered from the harsh conditions of the desert and the forest. Europeans, on the other hand, lived in a condition that was close to those found in the Garden of Eden. De Buffon published his own book, Histoire Naturelle, in 1749, it was an immediate European-wide success. But Linnaeus was the better celebrity. He played on his fame, and his influence grew. Species couldn't degenerate that much, he retorted to de Buffon. That was blasphemy. Species, including humans, were born, lived, existed precisely where God had intended them to. It's impossible, Linnaeus wrote, that anything which has ever been established by the all-wise creator can ever disappear. And by the 10th edition of Linnaeus's book, he'd classified 8,000 plants and 4,000 animals, including several races of humans that he'd supposedly found. Homo troglodytes from the Antarctic could eat raw flesh. Homo caudatus of Borneo and Nicobar had tails, Homo monstrosus from Lapland included giants and dwarfs. Homo sapiens asiaticus were yellow, melancholy, greedy. Homo sapiens americanus were ill-tempered and obstinate. And Homo sapiens afa from Africa were impassive, lazy, crafty, slow, foolish and ruled by caprice. Homo sapiens europaeus were 
white, serious, strong, active, very smart, inventive. Forms such as this have been known to be 50 miles in width and 100 miles long, and often they'll fly several hundred miles in a day. They strike terror into the hearts of man and beast, and natives in a stricken territory watch with feverish anxiety as the creatures fly overhead, praying that they will continue their flight without alighting to devour their crops and ruin their food supply. The idea of these biological distinctions between races began to dominate European science, developing across the 19th century into a new field, race science. Linnaeus's interpretation of the natural world triumphed over de Boffin's. Louis XV ordered it official. Rousseau said he knew of no greater man on earth. Even Darwin was ignored when he argued that it was environmental differences that had resulted in the adaption seen in humans. Race scientists, dominant, argued that there were clear fundamental biological differences. Darwin was crazy, quickly lost his influence after publishing On the Origin of Species, and became sidelined and descended into despair. He had episodes of hysterical crying, many called him ignorant. How could single species travel so far around the planet? How could ancient Israelites, for example, have ever reached the Pacific Islands on old-fashioned boats? These were clearly separate biological races that had evolved independently. Darwin performed experiments submerging seeds into water to see if they could survive long journeys, and getting fish and birds to eat them, retrieving them from their droppings and seeing if they still germinated, which, of course, they did. But the idea of separate development, of human subspecies, won the day. The Natural History Museum displayed models of different human species. The Bronx Zoo had a similar display on the races of man. They even kept a man from Congo, Otto Benga, in the monkey house where visitors watched him play. He was only released in 1906. It was clear to everyone that God and science had intended a separate, distinct, biological hierarchy of man. The separation of humans into a hierarchy of species almost logically and naturally led to a global, or at least western, concern. Degeneration, the mixing of genes, the dilution of hereditary superiority. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, led a new movement, eugenics. Policymakers, he argued, should focus not on education or investment, but on breeding good, pure citizens. Through the Galton Society, scientists warned of the impact of mass migration, of racial contamination. Many US states banned interracial sex and marriage in the late 19th century. 
biologist Charles Davenport warned that Americans could rapidly become darker in pigmentation, smaller in stature, more mercurial, more attached to music and art, and more given to crimes of larceny, kidnapping, assault, murder, rape, and sex immorality if the race is mixed. President Coolidge wrote about the biological laws that tell us that certain divergent people will not mix or blend. America, he declared after signing a bill to restrict immigration, must be kept American. University courses on eugenics skyrocketed, passports and identification documents became more common. The US closed its borders to migrants for the first time in history. Immigrants had to take intelligence tests at Ellis Island. Migration into the US quickly declined from around 800,000 a year in 1921 to 100,000 after 1929. Ellis Island closed in 1954. Even ships of refugees fleeing the Nazis were turned around. One ship, the St. Louis, reached Florida and was sent back to Europe. 254 of its passengers died in the Holocaust. Nazis, of course, most obsessed with purity, even advocated for the destruction of foreign plants in Germans' gardens. Himmler issued landscaping rules that banned any non-native species. A popular BBC series and 1958 book, The Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants, warned about protecting domestic species against invading alien ones. And the foundation of all of this, the belief in biological distinction, would persist for centuries. When, after the Holocaust, the UN released a statement that condemned racial distinctions, leading scientists mostly protested. Leading British scientist W.C. Osman Hill wrote, I need not mention the well-known musical attributes of the Negroids and the mathematical ability of some Indian races. Biologist Julian Juxley also pointed to the rhythm-loving Negro temperament. 83 of 106 anthropologists refused to sign the UN statement. And in 2018, the US Citizenship and Immigration Services changed its mission statement from fulfilling America's promise as a nation of immigrants to securing the homeland. The 20th century might be looked back on as the century we rediscovered movement. Advances in technology led to an almost unbelievable expansion in railways, roads, airports and even space travel. Industry sped up machines. In art, the Impressionists like Van Gogh had already tried to bring back movement into still images. Film, radio and then television developed. Philosophers like Gilles Deleuze brought the idea of change, movement, dynamism back into a field he thought had been static, representational. 
but Linnaeus's belief that species were native to specific locations continued throughout the 20th century. No one believed that humans, let alone many weak animals, could have dispersed so far and wide across the globe. Creatures couldn't migrate from Africa to the Pacific Islands. They couldn't swim thousands of miles. Species had to have evolved separately. It took technology only invented in the late 20th century, GPS and modern DNA analysis in particular, to discover a fact that shocked many scientists. Around half of all species aren't sedentary at all. They're on the move. And it's only in the last couple of decades that the real extent of this discovery is becoming clear. Animal migrations are incredibly difficult to study. Even harder to understand is our prehistoric past. Tracking technology was heavy, expensive, and unable to be used at long distances. Solar-powered GPS tags changed this. Suddenly, Researchers have been able to track migrations on a scale no one ever suspected. 70,000 kilometer migrations of terns, zebras walking over 500 kilometers, crocodiles swimming 200 miles out to sea, dragonflies flying hundreds of kilometers in a day. Everything from sharks to wolves migrating thousands of miles. A new field of study called Movement Ecology rapidly developed. This video from MoveBank logs the movement of 8,000 animals fitted with GPS tags. Linnaeus's ideas about using geographical locations in a species name had become, for the first time, unreliable. The natural world is much more fluid, much more dynamic, than we ever realised. And only in the 1980s did modern DNA analysis finally prove that Homo sapiens were one single species with a common ancestor that had spread all over the globe. In the year 2000, the Human Genome Project found that the differences between us accounted for about 0.1% of our gene sequence. As journalist Sonia Shah points out, migration is so common that it's pointless asking why people migrate, but rather we should ask why anyone would stay in the same place. She writes, migration is encoded into our bodies just as it is in wild species. It's a force of nature, a fact of life, built into biology itself. Yet despite this, we increasingly try to prevent migration thinking of humans as naturally sedentary, rather than biologically dynamic. In 1945, there were just five border walls in the world. By 1991, there were still only 19. In 2016, there were 70. North Korea encages its people. India fences itself off from Pakistan and Bangladesh. Tunisia has built trenches filled with water along its border with Libya. In Hungary, prisoners were used to build a fence along its border with Croatia. 
Israel uses razor wire, sensors and infrared cameras. Britain and France have increased the fencing at the Channel Tunnel. Norway has two with its Russian border. And Trump's border wall increased the US-Mexico barrier by almost 500 miles. However, despite this, walls, as Wendy Brown has argued, are more effective as political theatre and rhetoric than preventing the flow of migration. Instead, they just send migrants through different routes. They create an underground smuggler economy which increases crime and ultimately make migrant routes more dangerous. And of course, they impose an artificial order on what, as we've seen, is a natural global phenomenon found in every species. Our nationalist bias, our sedentary bias, makes these things appear natural the way the world is, the way it has to be, while often obscuring the complexity of borders as a phenomenon. They separate families, cut off jobs, and always imply the violence needed to defend them. For a rich person, borders often signify excitement, adventure, holiday, vacation. For poor people, a border means something entirely different, a prison a limit, an obstacle to be overcome. Jonathan Moses has argued that we could even draw an analogy between international borders and apartheid. Moses asks, why is the Danes' advantage over the Somalian legitimate and protected by international law, while the Afrikaner's advantage over the Zosi was not? For millennia, Migration was a part of human life, all life, slow but steady. Science and technology have had a strange effect on that history. Inductive empiricism, the careful study of the world, has tended, historically, to collect evidence in a snapshot at a specific point in time, and then announces that view of the world as a found universal truth. It discovers people, life, things, where they are, and presumes, often, that's where they belong. And just as scientific racism was pinning everyone down, technology was speeding everyone up, leading to a contradiction that both builds walls and encourages more movement at the same time. And this contradiction is only going to get more pronounced. Between 2008 and 2014, floods, storms, earthquakes and other disasters displaced 26 million around the world. In 2015 alone, 15 million were forced to flee wars. In that same year, a million of them migrated across the Mediterranean Sea. When we look at these people, we tend to take the states, the nations that they've been moving between, moving through, as the natural unit of analysis. That those people are misfits or aliens, in or out of some kind of container. But as Ulrich Beck has noted, as we become more global, as the world becomes quicker and more connected, the unity of national state and national society becomes unstuck. 
scientific racism, human taxonomy, the state, border walls, guards, passports, global inequality, they all hide the fact that not only are we all migrants in our bones, but that increasingly we are globalised ones with many more options and desires than ever before. It's not only the possibility of more global displacement from disasters, wars, poverty and climate change, but also that we're all, through supply chains, work, travel and family life, becoming more mobile, dynamic and international every day. We should focus on ways not just to facilitate this, but to actually encourage it, to make it easier and more efficient. The UN's Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, for example, encourages international support to do just this. We all know that we want to move around the world as we wish, for all the things we'd love to do. But we rarely reflect on the contradiction and injustice that makes this possible for many of us, but impossible for many others around the world. As centuries of naive and crude pseudoscience get refuted, as we rediscover movement, mobility and our migrant impulse, should we not be trying not to build up walls, but to realise that we are all inevitably at some point on the move. <laughs>